Welcome to episode five of Roots Rearview Podcast. My name is Clint Holly, and I'll be your host today. Roots Rearview is produced in conjunction with Roots of American Music, and this episode was funded by Prosperity Social Club in the Tremont neighborhood of Cleveland. Today we take on the exciting topic of the corner bar, the old man bar, the dive bar, the place where people from a neighborhood get together and they drink and they talk and they know each other and they know each other's families. The bar in particular that we will be talking about today is called Hotes Cafe, a true Cleveland landmark having been open for a hundred years as of 2019 and always run by members of the Hotes family. To commemorate this incredible accomplishment, Roots of American Music and the Ernest Tube recording crew decided to go into Hotes and set up a recording rig and record a band. And we have a great cast of characters today. We have John Hotes, the owner of Hotes, Sheila, his wife, and kind of the face of the bar, Brandon Lee from The Lucky Ones. That's the band that we recorded, and they have a open mic night at Hotes uh, one Tuesday night out of every month. And then we also talked to Bonnie Flinner, owner of Prosperity Social Club, who was nice enough to fund this episode because the Hotes family took such great care of her when she opened her bar almost 15 years ago in the Tremont neighborhood. So grab yourself a cold beverage of your choice and kick back and let's dive deep into the idea of the corner bar being the original social network. Modern day life is filled with networks, radio networks, television networks, computer networks. Social networking is uh, the hot button phrase of the, the new millennium. We deal with Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat. Every day, billions of people connect with each other over these social networks. And as I sat in Hotes Cafe interviewing all the people associated with it, it struck me that these corner bars in these neighborhoods were at one time the original social network, a place where people got together, they spread news, they talked about the current events of the day, they listened to, talked about, or watched sports on television, they made bets, they met the partners that they would spend the rest of their life with, or they spent the time in the bar getting away from their family in these close quarters that people lived in, in these neighborhoods that uh, drew immigrants to industrial cities like Cleveland in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Hotes Cafe is nestled in the Tremont neighborhood of Cleveland. And now Tremont is a very old neighborhood. It's the first kind of residential area, the south of downtown. For many decades, Tremont's fortunes rose and fell with the general industrial health of the city of Cleveland. Many of the people that lived in the Tremont neighborhood were immigrants, and they found jobs at the steel mills that were really right down the hill from the Tremont neighborhood in what's called the Flats. Let's sit down with John Hotes and listen to him talk about the neighborhood and how it evolved from these immigrants. He uses a very old-school phrase, DP, meaning displaced persons, uh, when he refers to the immigrants in the neighborhood and how they bonded together in this neighborhood because of uh, language barriers and because they wanted to be self-contained. That's kind of what brought this neighborhood to what it was because uh, it was a mix of uh, ethnics. Yes. And um, we were, they were known as DPs. And that's why this neighborhood has the uh, 14 churches in a, in a, sure. a, a one-mile radius or whatever the case is. Uh, right. And um, 
grocery stores, supermarkets, uh, was all right. in the community where the DPs didn't have to go anywhere else, right. but they couldn't speak English. Right. Even the bathhouses. Correct. The bathhouse. Bathhouse has you know? been there forever. Right. Um, it, it, it was exactly what it was. It was a bathhouse. Right. For people that didn't have a shower. Plumbing. Right. Exactly. Wow. John told me that the family came here from Russia in about 1917, and that's about the same time as the Russian Revolution, and he also indicated that they were white Russians, meaning they were not on the red side, which was the side that prevailed in Russia. So maybe the family was escaping some kind of persecution where they saw the writing on the wall and decided to leave and come to America to start a new life. And John's family has a long history of serving in the military and of service to the United States. So he talks a little bit about this in the clip, what the family name meant to his father, and how the continuation of the business to the family was an idea that was the kernel of all this back in 1919. Well, Hoax got started back in uh, somewhere around 1919, I guess, is the official date. Prior to that, uh, uh, it was a um, somewhat of a store. Okay. Uh, store type of a scene there and um, my grandfather well first of all let me say this all of the boys were in the military at the same time okay and uh, my grandfather was feuding with the government because he felt that if he didn't uh, if he lost one of his kids that would uh, end his name for anybody to ongoing his right. business per right. se and uh with that being said, right. while all of his sons were in at the same time, he opened Hoach Cafe, and he didn't have any of his kins to be able to take care of it because he had five boys. Right. And um, once, once they were going through all that, my grandfather was running it by himself, and uh, his brother, his friend, was running it with him. As I'm not sure. I don't remember his name, per se. Right. And uh, they opened up the bar in the early 20s, um, they started, when the, when the kids come back from the military, two of them got shot, wounded. Right. Um, <clears throat> a couple of the, the sons were uh, semi-pro, pro baseball players. Okay. And uh, one was an accountant. Right. And uh, when the boys came back, uh, they were able to help their father start to keep running the business the because business. he was running the business himself. They're from the old, uh, I believe they're called White Russians. Yes, okay. And um, old school people coming in over here, and it's a family type of thing where right. they lived and died by the family name. They weren't one to uh, want to have uh, any outside help right. because they were trying to provide for Their all own the family. kids. Right. Their own family. So with that being said, he purchased the building next door. Right. And this building here. And all of his kids lived here. Okay. In the same area. Next door, my grandfather lived. And then upstairs, one of his kids lived. Over here, we lived upstairs. And then downstairs, the other kids lived until they all kind of went their own ways. And the two decided to stay and help their father, which at that point was my father, Andy, and his brother, Mike. The next character we're going to meet in the story is Brandon Lee. He has a band called uh, The Lucky Ones, and Brandon is a long-term Tremont resident, and he found Hotes like many other people, where he just moved to the neighborhood, and he kind of wandered in one day, and he meets the Hotes family, and you immediately kind of fall in love with them and the place itself, and he brainstorms the idea to start an open mic there. Hotes has never really been known as a place to have live music. They have uh, live bands, you know, maybe a couple times a year, but he wanted to do something for the community so every 
second Tuesday night of each month. He uh, has an open mic night, and uh, it's attended very well by people in the neighborhood because there is kind of an arts community in the Tremont neighborhood. So he's given something back because Hotes gave something to him originally. So let's talk to Brandon a little bit about why he likes Hotes and about uh, how these kind of places can be a hub for people to gather in, in a neighborhood. What, what attracts you other than the, old, the oldness of the Hotes Cafe? Um, just, I mean, honestly, the people, you yeah. know, and the fact that like this truly has been family owned and like the, you know, the more and more you get to know these folks, the more the stories come out and you're just like, this is a true piece of history. It is. You know, and it's yeah. one of those places that like, yeah, I mean, you, you can't just walk up on if it's so unassuming, right. you know, and then you look, you come in and you're like, oh man, this is where Babe Ruth cut a check to like buy the whole uh, bar around right you know what I mean it's like, and it was probably like four bucks yeah it was 13 <laughs> 13 <laughs> bucks <laughs> so how do you see places like this fitting into modern society as you know everybody's on their phones these days and like you know how does how, do you think that um people come to places like this to kind of get away from that because this is kind of the original social I, I, I truly network, do you know? believe that yeah. you know I, you know it's it's it's, uh, it's interesting you go to some other places around the neighborhood and you know it, everybody is like stuck on their phone or waiting for the next thing or watching TV I mean right. there's TVs here but like this is more of like a gathering place for people to come hang out talk to each yeah, other yeah exactly talk and, like, to yeah, each other, right. like look at each other and be like oh hey like you right. know, how are you doing <laughs> On the day that we recorded these interviews, me and my partner Dave, were collectively known as the Ernest Tube Recording Crew, uh, brought in a recording rig. And this rig is, is special. If you haven't tuned in to any of these podcasts before, we cut artists directly to a disc. And this is how music was recorded prior to 1950. Guys like Alan Lomax, who drove around the country collecting folk songs in the early 20th century, used machinery like this to record people onto a disc that essentially looks like a record. And it's an aluminum disc coated with a nitrocellulose lacquer. This process is special because we capture a performance. There's no overdubs. There's no editing. It's the band, the microphones, and the disc. And then we play these discs back and we record them and we present these uh, performances uh, in, this, in these podcasts. Um, Brandon and his band, The Lucky Ones, were kind enough to set up in Hotes Cafe while they were open and uh, recorded uh, several tracks. And uh, so the first one we're going to listen to is uh, called Pretty Streets. So kick back, enjoy Brandon and his band, The Lucky Ones, in playing uh, this music for you. With the rising tide Clouds hang low In the dark blue sky Distant moon See she cry Watch out boy You're drifting to die Standing on the razor's edge I can't find my lips Streets don't look so pretty now Kissed a chain Some blue eye On a 
person we're going to talk about in this network is Sheila Hotz. Now, Sheila is married to John, and she's basically the face of Hotz Cafe. When you walk into the bar for the first time, you're going to meet probably one of two people. You're going to meet Sheila or her sister Carrie. They're the ones that do the bulk of the day-to-day work at Hotz Cafe. They tend bar, and they get some auxiliary help from some neighborhood people and some friends and family uh, to do some heavy lifting stuff like moving kegs and that kind of stuff. But they are the ones that are there day-to-day. And uh, Sheila was the first person that I ever met going to Hotz. And my wife, Bonnie Flinter, can recount her first experiences at Hotz with Sheila and how warm and friendly Sheila is. My first experience with Hotz Cafe was with Sheila. It was October of 2005, and I had purchased a 1938 tavern about a block down the street from where Hotz is located. And I met Sheila, and she was the most welcoming person I had met in the neighborhood. I had a lot of challenges uh, coming into a tight-knit community and everybody wondering what I was up to and what I was going to do. And Sheila was the most welcoming person and very supportive of me and uh, just made me feel very comfortable and like a part of her family. Sheila's a very modest person, and we had to twist her arm just a little bit to get her on microphone for an interview. But when we did, we got great stuff. And um, Sheila's a warm person. She's dealt with thousands of people, and she treats everybody exactly the same, like they are part of her family. And that's the beauty of Sheila and Hotz Cafe, is you always feel like you're walking into somebody's uh, living room. So let's talk to Sheila a little bit about uh, Tremont, how she met John, and uh, her involvement with Hotz at a very early age. So how did you meet John? Where did you meet John at? Uh, in high school. Okay. Did you grow up in, in the Tremont area? I did. Yeah, I okay. grew up... Uh, I went to Tremont Elementary School. I grew up mainly over on West 12th and Clark. So Hotz has been part of your life it has. for your entire life, yes. really. Even my dad used to drink here when, when, before I even knew my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Did your dad ever bring you in here? Probably. He, yeah. Yeah, people took kids everywhere back then in the bars. <laughs> <laughs> so where did, you, where did you meet John at then? In uh, Lincoln High School. Okay. And is that in, was Lincoln in Tremont? It's, uh, yeah, it was on uh, Scranton Avenue. Okay. It's not there anymore. They tore it down, but uh, that's actually a picture of the high school up there. Oh, okay. So, and they just had their 50th uh, anniversary. Did they this really? Year too. Their reunion? Their yes, reunion? Their reunion. Wow. And, and it's also our 50th anniversary this year. So it was a Is big really? year for everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So we got married right out of high school. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. 
And you're still chugging along. We're trying. <laughs> now, Sheila also makes a great observation about the neighborhood, how it used to function when the steel mills were the, the anchor for the entire neighborhood and how it changed over the years and became more transient and how that affected their business and that, uh, that network of people that we talk about. Well, when I was growing up here, I should say, this was a neighborhood bar where everybody knew everybody and right. everybody worked at the mill and everybody had their own stool, you know, right. mainly well, all men, mainly all men. Everybody right. had a nickname. And then, <laughs> Some of the nicknames you can't oh, yeah. even repeat anymore. Just ridiculous right. ridiculous nicknames. <laughs> right. But then when, like, when I was here, it, it's a transient, it's turned into a transient neighborhood. Right. Where people live here for three years and then move on. Right. So it was really hard to establish regulars. Right. Even though everybody was very nice. Right. It's just, they would be here for two or three years and then, but they still come back. They come back now with their kids or, you know, once they move out or want, they want to get married or start a family, they move out. But they always come back. Now we've already alluded to one of the other links in this network and that's the steel mills. The steel mills in the flats of Cleveland were at one time the dominant industry in the city. And for decades, they kind of ruled the roost. And thousands of people were employed at the mills. And a lot of those people lived in Tremont. And it was the engine that drove uh, the economy of the Tremont neighborhood. And John Holtz has a lot to say about the steel mills and how the fortunes of the bar uh, kind of would rise and fall with the steel mills and and the the mentality of the people that worked at the steel mills, how they were uh, just trying to make it to the end of their day and uh, get get to that Hotz's Cafe. But then there's a great anecdote in here about uh, the good things that his grandfather uh, did also for the people who were his friends and an extension of his family. It was the bread and butter of all the people that lived in the area. Right. So that was their whole life, right? the steel mill. And that was a huge part of your clientele, I would imagine. It was all our clientele. Yeah. Now, my grandfather opened up at 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And um, you would get three shifts from the steel mill. Right. Right? Graveyard, days, and afternoons. Mid-swing shift, right. Right, swing. Yeah. This is what these guys did for a living, was work and drink. Drink, right. And that's a place where everybody went to let it out. All the customers used to come and bring their checks in on, uh, you know, on payday from the steel mills. Right. And um, I know for a fact that back in the recession, when people didn't have any money, they would come to a beer joint and they would spend their last dollar yeah. on a drink. Right. For problems or whatever they had. Either you're happy or you're sad and you're drinking for both of those, right? Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. So my grandfather would, would take the checks and he would go out and buy bread or, you know, a bacon or egg or something. And he'd go to the families of the customers and he'd give them some of their check back and give them some food. Because, Did he really? Because he knew they were spending. They were their, drinking up the grocery money. Yeah. And right. everybody in this business thinks you're a millionaire because right. if you spend your last $20 bill at Hoetz's, right? Right. And you're jacked up and you go home and you're broke. Right. Well, who's got all your money? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that bartender. He right. must be loaded. Right. Because he got all my money. Right. And that's kind of the way it was with the steel mill workers. So they punch a clock, and they couldn't, couldn't get here fast enough. It was a pit stop. Right. And uh, they, they, they put the tagline on it back in the days where good friends meet. Right. Which kind of was a cool thing because it became a, uh, a friendly bar 
along with just a, being just a beer joint. Right. Because these guys were tight. Right. Everybody had your back here. And if there was a beef or two here and there, it wouldn't be anything where you'd want to have your place tore up or something. But, right. you know, it was just between friends, and they'd usually feel bad or buy them a drink. Right, kind of stuff yeah, like two that. days later, they're best friends all exactly. over again. <laughs> so so, so, so the, the steel mills was a, was a big, a big, big, big um, uh, important part of this business. Right. Another important link in this bar neighborhood network that we've been constructing through Hotes Cafe has to do with celebrity, sports, and gambling. Another way to make a little bit of money if you're in the business. In a previous episode of Roots Rearview, we profiled Johnny Kilbane, a very famous Cleveland boxer. It so happens that he was a regular at Hotes Cafe, and John has a lot to talk about in terms of boxing and other sports celebrities that stopped in over the years and would kind of hang out there. Were you involved in boxing too? Uh, yes, I was a little yeah. bit, but uh, Johnny Kilbane was a good friend of my father's. Yeah. He was also a regular. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. And then, and there was several of them. Uh, uh, if I think back, I'm going to try to think back. Uh, Jimmy Bivens, I'm not sure if you ever heard of that name. No, I haven't. He was a he was a was one of the first black boxers. Oh, okay. And uh, blacks were not uh, back then. Blacks weren't weren't mingling. Right. Um, but he seemed to get through here because of the boxing, boxing. game. And with Gilbane, right. he kind of had protection around him and stuff like that. Right. But, uh, you know, there were game fights, meaning that uh, everybody made a little bit of money. Now, going back to the, the baseball thing, Babe Ruth has been in here, right? Many times. Yeah. Uh, Babe Ruth, uh, Ty Cobb, Lou Gehrig. Babe Ruth was a, uh, from what I'm understanding and what I've been told, he was pretty much a, a enjoyable guy. Uh, right. You know, strictly business, uh, drank or whatever he had to drink. But I know that they came and played a game called 66. Okay. Ever heard of it? No. I have not. I've tried to research. I think it's some type of a pinnacle okay. uh, game. It's a card game. Then. It's a card game. And, yeah. I, and I've, I've got one of the old tables upstairs in the barn that I could still visualize it sitting here. There was multiple tables over there, but these guys had their own reserve table okay. for, for them to come in and play this pinnacle. Right. But they were also gambling. Right. So there was money, not exchange, but exchange. Right. If you're saying. Yes. And Babe was sharp. He, yeah. he, he knew that people... Um, because he was a celebrity, per se, and, 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 and all this other stuff, you know, he set places up from what I've been told, like the check. Right. He, he knew that people uh, wouldn't cash, cash it, it. Right. Because it was a souvenir to them, per se. Sure, it had his autograph had on his it, Had his autograph on it. Right, yeah. And we found out through the years about the check, because I figured, well, this thing has got to be something you know, phenomenal. But it's been told that uh, because he signs Babe Ruth on it and it's not his signature, the check is useless. Really? Yeah, because he's not Babe Ruth. Right. He's, what is he, George Herman? Right. Yeah. Right. So, so he puts the Babe on the check, the check is default. But they know that people are not going to cast the check anyway. So. Right. So he gets by, he brought around the drinks, 13 bucks or whatever the deal was, and he right. signs his name and everybody's like, hey, Woo! you know, my grandfather says, oh, look here, I got his check, you know, put it up there. When that Babe Ruth story happened, Hotes Cafe was a real boys club inhabited by men from the steel mills and women who might come into the bar were not viewed very highly. But things have changed, times have changed, and 
Uh, anybody can go into Hoat's Cafe now and feel completely comfortable. And one of the people that's done that is Brandon Lee from the Lucky Ones. He uh, started an open mic there and let uh, musicians come to the club and start uh, playing their original music. So let's talk to Brandon a little bit about that and help that helps people develop their musical skills. And then we'll listen to one of the Lucky Ones songs called When I Fall. You know, it's really something that like um, is been a great tool for me to be able to just to play right. um, by myself without anybody else, test right. out new tunes, get the avenue of other people. It's just a great synergy of like talking to folks about what they're doing and how, you know, so it's become a really cool, um, you know, building block of like, you know, furthering my musical career, but also right. trying to bring other people up and say, hey, you know, there's there's a spot here if you want to get on it. In the edge of the world, the golden state. Running ridges in the ridges of the northwest pines. But it's you that see my face. We walk through dust till the sunrise. Laugh at the moon for hiding in space. There's one thing I can promise. I'll be there. When you fall Now time's got a funny way of moving When the thing that you love don't turn out right Make a phone hand be tempo And kindness be your guide Don't pass too long in the sunlight Let that darkness take your soul There's one thing I can promise I'll be there when you fall Hoats Cafe, like any other network, has its limits. It includes and it excludes, and that definition changes over time. John Hoats, in the next clip, will tell us how that network functioned, say, during the Prohibition era, and we will, as we get closer to the end of our story here, tell how that definition has changed over the years, and now anybody can walk into Hoats Cafe and feel right at home and part of the family uh, in an instant after they walk through that door. 
But let's start and go back to the Prohibition days with John and talk about how that network kind of functioned. Well, during the Prohibition, it's interesting you say that, because the only way that I know that is through uh, dabbling with my father. Right. And uh, these guys wouldn't kiss and tell. Right. Only because there was other ways to make a living in the beer joint business. Right. So you can't put your business out on the street if you're uh, bookmaking, right. uh, buying fighters, owning fighters, right. racehorses, right. that kind of stuff. So the place was nothing but a, a police bar. Right. It was all cops. Right. Um, my uncle was a policeman, so on and so forth. And um, they could kind of do what they, they wanted to do. They were protected a little yeah, bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Not only that, the police were protecting themselves. Right. So they could get away with that. So right. I, as far as them being into a speakeasy, uh, selling a lot to the public, right. it was more of a club. Club, right. You know what I mean? Like a private club. Uh, everybody knew everybody. Right. Uh, from... Well, FDR on down. I mean, you right. can't find history like that in a place. And obviously, I think a lot of people knew what was going on. Right. But uh, they didn't want to, to dabble in it. Sure. Or they didn't want to turn somebody in. It was, you know. You're... No. And you're going back into the gangster days. Right. Now, back in the gangster days, as the prohibition was going on, uh, there was bootlegging going on. Right. And my grandfather and them, they had a private uh, still where they were, you know, kind of uh, trying to dabble in the business. But right. before they really got too deep in it because it was too much work, right? they found the connection where they could get their liquor. Right. You didn't have to have a license at that time either. Right. You know what I'm saying? You didn't, you know, you didn't need a liquor license. Anybody could... Uh, Buy uh, and sell it. Yeah. Right, right. So if you owned a bar... Um, you can open a bar, I can open a bar, he can open a bar, and right. there was no license required at the time because of that rule. Right. And then um, during the Prohibition, where uh, Elliot Ness and them were trying to monkey around with the mob, right. back in the days when my father and them were, were doing some things, let's put it this way, the place was so protected, it was no place for nobody from the mob to mess with. Right. Uh, and that's kind of what the, 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 the place has been. And families that come here were protected by that, too, too, because they knew that this place had your back. Right. So if you were doing something wrong, as long as you weren't doing something really wrong, really wrong. Right. Yeah, you, you could get by with it. <laughs> right. and, and, and I remember back then, no, this was not a place for women. Right. You know, it was, uh, you weren't considered... Sheila said she wasn't even allowed in here. No, they right. were. My mom was not allowed. Right. My father would throw her out. After the Prohibition era ended and also the era of the influence of the steel mills, Tremont changed a lot. In the 70s and 80s, it became a neighborhood that was plagued with blight and a lot of other problems, but it also then had low rent, and artists moved into the neighborhood. And uh, over time, the artists increased the cultural capacity of the neighborhood, and then other people started moving back into the neighborhood. And today, say for the last 15 to 20 years, we've seen an increase of all sorts of people move to Tremont, uh, families, single people, professionals. And so there's a much more eclectic crowd in the Tremont neighborhood now. And Bonnie Flinner from Prosperity Social Club speaks to this uh, very eloquently in this next clip. And I think it shows where we've come since the Prohibition days to the modern day and how all of these establishments have adapted 
to include this wide variety of people into their businesses and their culture? Well, I think, you know, as with everything in society, um, we are moving forward to realizing that uh, the diversity is what makes our neighborhoods and our communities uh, rich and the diversity of cultures and food and languages and stories and history, you know, really come together in a place like Prosperity Social Club or at Hotz's where everyone that sits next to each other, they are all the same. They're treated all the same and they are all on equal ground. And, you know, we have a very eclectic clientele we're in an eclectic neighborhood, and I really think that um, coming into our establishments reflect that vibe of um, being comfortable in your own skin and being able to communicate and have relationships with people that are different from you and come from all different walks of life. As the 21st century pushes the boundaries of Hotz's social network, the one final question that remains is, are people who have passed on still trying to be part of that network? And we'll check in with Sheila Hotz here for her opinion on that. Is the building haunted, do you think? Uh, yes. Yeah? Have you ever had a, an experience yourself? Well, yeah, we've had a few uh, things where we know it's haunted, but my sister Carrie, she actually did see a, a full apparition here oh, really? herself. Yes. The bar was always open like till 1 in the morning. Right. And then when, when the, we turned it over to 2.30... Every night at one in the morning, all the lights would start to flicker. They really? would just go crazy. And my sister would go, she called my father-in-law, Uncle Andy, and she'd be like, all right, Uncle Andy, you know, we're getting ready, but we're open until 2.30 now. But that would happen every day. It was like it was closing time. And, and you would hear, like... at that time, my, my, my husband was raised upstairs. So at this time that this was happening, there was nobody up there. As we wind down our conversation in celebration of Hotz Cafe's 100th anniversary, let's check in with a few of the major players in this conversation for their final thoughts. Uh, let's talk to John Hotz. Uh, Bonnie Flinner is going to read a quote that means a lot to her and expresses her feelings about these kind of places. And then we're going to listen to a song, one last song from Brandon Lee and the Lucky Ones that I think wraps this all up perfectly. It's called Journey, and this has been a hundred-year Journey. Obviously, we're the oldest original tavern. Right. Always was and always will be in the South Side that ever that ever existed. Right. And the customers that come here are loyal customers. Right. They're not just loyal customers, but they're friends. Right. This is my wife Sheila. Oh, we know Sheila very well. And I love her to death. Right. And without her, we wouldn't be existing. J.R. Moringer uh, wrote this book called The Tender Bar, and the prologue of the book is all about the bar he grew up around and shared a lot of his experiences throughout his life that uh, he feels shaped his life. And it's um, kind of a romanticized perspective. But I want to read you the uh, first paragraph in the prologue, and it's called One of Many. We went there for everything we needed. We went there when thirsty, of course, and when hungry and when dead tired. We went there when happy to celebrate and when sad to sulk. We went there after weddings and funerals for something to settle our nerves and always for a shot of courage just before. We went there when we didn't know what we needed, hoping somebody might tell us. We went there when looking for love or sex or trouble or for someone who had gone missing because sooner or later everyone turned up there. Most of all, we went there when we needed to be found. 
Rolling in the city, I fall in love with the angel drop from heaven that just spoke I'm floating by the passers-by, try to catch my dolphins eye. We make contact and then we die. Episode 5 of Roots Rearview, Hotes Cafe, the original social network. My name is Clint Holly, and I've been your host today. I also wrote and produced this episode. 
The Ernest Tube on-location disc recording crew was myself, Dave Polster, and Mike Fanos. These episodes are produced in conjunction with Roots of American Music in Cleveland, Ohio. And my thanks go out to Kevin Richards and John McDonald, artistic director and president of that organization. This episode was graciously funded by Bonnie Flinner of Prosperity Social Club in the Tremont neighborhood of Cleveland. If you would like to donate to or fund an episode of Roots Rearview, please go to www.rootsofamericanmusic.org and follow the links there. Roots of American Music is an organization in Northeast Ohio dedicated to the preservation and education of American roots music. If you find yourself in the Tremont neighborhood, please stop in at Hotes Cafe and say hi to Sheila and Carrie. They will treat you like family. 2020 has a lot in store for Roots Rearview, including several trips to Akron, Ohio, funded by the Knight Foundation, where we tell more historical stories through interviews and music. So until then, have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> so, no. Right.